Hello, and welcome to Full Circle, a healthcare podcast by Aventus Whole Health. I'm your host, Kim Howell, and this week, I'm sitting down with Aventus's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Jennifer Rucci. We're discussing Alzheimer's in honor of June's status as Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Join us as Dr. Rucci walks us through the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia and some of the research taking place, some of it right here at Aventus, to tackle this hard-hitting disease. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Rucci, as we talk about Alzheimer's in honor of June's status as Alzheimer's Awareness Month. So if you could give us a little background on your history in geriatric psychiatry and your interest in researching and working with patients who have Alzheimer's. Sure. So geriatric psychiatry became an interest of mine pretty early on in my career. I can think back, you know, truthfully all the way into childhood. And I was considered an old soul, I suppose, growing up. And I always was interested with older people. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, one of who actually did succumb to Alzheimer's disease in her 80s. And so it was of interest to mine, again, even growing up. As I progressed in my education, I went to college, grew interest in psychiatry, and then ultimately wound up in medical school, where I explored lots of different kinds of medicine, but settled back in again on psychiatry and specifically in geriatrics. So as I trained in my psychiatry residency out in University of Colorado, I spent a lot of time seeking out older patients, older rotations, etc., so I could learn even more because it became very clear to me that there's a significant need in this population, that geriatric psychiatrists are the number one needed specialty in all of medicine. There's just not enough of them around. And I knew that there was a lot that I could do to help this population. It was really emergingly clear that the field of psychiatry that I entered into would be very different than the one I exited from when I retired because there was so much still to learn and do. What exactly is Alzheimer's? We hear about early onset Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's in general. So can you give us a basic definition or rundown of what Alzheimer's is? So Alzheimer's disease is a condition that really, unfortunately, is a pretty severe situation for older individuals and families and the folks around them as well. So if we look at specific diagnostic criteria, and we, what we use for that is what's in the DSM-5 for psychiatry. So if we look there, it describes exactly what we expect to see clinically. It's individuals who, as they get older, they develop a more than normal for aging level of cognitive decline, specifically something that, that sort of subtly presents at first, that it just feels like certain things like memory or or spatial awareness start to slip a little bit more than expected. And that's what's called an insidious onset. It gradually progresses from there. And it's something that kind of always gets a little worse. And if you look at some of the specific criteria there, it's kind of one of those things you have to have a memory impairment. It's a really core feature of Alzheimer's disease, different than perhaps some of the other dementias, where you specifically have a memory impairment, but then also an impairment in another one of your cognitive domains, visual, spatial perception, social awareness, etc., have to also be impaired. But it almost always starts with memory specifically. And again, as I mentioned, it always gets worse. So it's kind of a steady progressive decline and you don't have periods of stability. Some of the other illnesses of cognitive function can have bouts of waxing and waning or periods of return to normalcy. That does not happen with Alzheimer's disease. Just like a lot of other things clinically, psychiatrically, we have to rule out a lot of other stuff first. We have to prove that it's not a medical cause or not another psychiatric cause and that we really do determine it to be Alzheimer's. Because just like a lot of other things, 
things in psychiatry. We don't have a test. We don't have a specific test we can send someone off for and that comes back saying that they have Alzheimer's. It's actually a diagnosis of pathology. So kind of a going conversation in geriatric psychiatry is you really can't officially diagnose anyone with Alzheimer's disease until they're deceased because it has to be done on an autopsy of the brain where you take tissues and you look at it under a microscope. And we see really unique things in that situation. So the real challenge for us is to try to connect what we see in that postmortem example with what we're seeing clinically as well. And there's a lot of research being done into what we're seeing histologically to kind of help connect those things. What we can see while the person is still living is we can see things on brain scans like MRIs where you have overall cortical atrophy. So you have a decreased brain mass kind of a little of everywhere with Alzheimer's disease, which distinguishes it from some of the other dementias. And then what we see histologically would be two real hallmark proteins that get a lot of press about. It's the beta amyloid plaques, and those are proteins that develop outside of the neurons. And then there's these tau neurofibrillary tangles that develop inside the neurons. And there's a little bit of a question to cause an effect there, but in the end, that leads to a lot of inflammation in the brain and inflammation is not good in most places of your body. And as a result of that, neurons die. We'll come back to those two proteins that you're talking about, given some new innovations that have come about in research in certain populations. You talked about Alzheimer's as being different from other dementia. So Alzheimer's is its own subset and disease, but how how does it relate to dementia? Sometimes those words are used interchangeably by folks who may not work in the medical field, but really what are the core differences or similarities between the two? Uh, great question, because that's often an important thing for our clinicians internally as well. So what's interesting is the word dementia is actually not even in the DSM anymore. So the new term is major neurocognitive disorder, and that's the official clinical term that we use internally in our documentation and to communicate with other clinicians, but the colloquial term still is dementia. But they kind of equivalently mean the same thing. And what's really neat in the new version of the DSM version five that came out is when they renamed and rebranded dementia into major neurocognitive disorder, it became a series of etiologies. So Alzheimer's disease is specifically academically called major neurocognitive disorder due to Alzheimer's disease. And other dementias can be due to other things. So there's major neurocognitive disorder due to vascular disease or major neurocognitive disorder due to Parkinson's disease and a dozen or so other other ones that help to differentiate it. So really kind of what you said, Kim, is true, that Alzheimer's disease is a subset of dementia or now major neurocognitive disorder, but there's a lot of other types. And it is really important to help differentiate some of that for our clinicians because the treatments are different. The treatments that we use for Alzheimer's disease are very different than the treatments we would use for Parkinson's dementia and very different from things that we would use for vascular dementia or HIV dementia or some of the others. So I do spend a lot of time with the clinicians internally teaching them all the different types of diagnoses for psychiatric conditions, but it is really critical that our clinicians understand how to differentiate Alzheimer's from other dementias because, again, the treatment matters. Let's touch on that for a moment. What does treatment look like for a patient who has major neurocognitive disorder due to Alzheimer's disease? Fortunately, it really is kind of a lagging specialty in psychiatry as far as treatment options go. Despite the intense amount of research that's going on and some of the future options, the current options are pretty limited. So the couple of drug classes that we can use that have been around for a good bit of time now are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Sometimes we just call them cholinesterase inhibitors for short. And there's three medicines in that class. There's denepazil, rivastigmine, and galantamine. And all three of those basically work by blocking the breakdown of acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a, one of the neurotransmitters that we know helps with attention and memory. And so although these medicines do not bring back neurons that are already dead and malfunctioning due to the disease 
pathology in the first place, what they do allow for is for any neurons that are still left that are acetylcholine pathway neurons, they allow them to work a little bit better. Unfortunately, none of these medicines can reverse the course of Alzheimer's disease, but they have been shown to slow the progression. So they help to delay the onset of decline for specific endpoints, such as time to long-term care placement. If you think about most of Alzheimer's disease and dementias are treated in the outpatient ambulatory setting, unfortunately, these individuals often do eventually want up in long-term care placement. And the idea is how long can we delay that? How long can we allow people to live independently at home or with their families before they're in need of the care of a long-term care facility? So most of those medicines are designed around preventing that decline. And again, the effects are relatively minor, unfortunately, but they do have good evidence, again, in that outpatient ambulatory population to delay the long-term effects. They are not without side effects, however. So I always warn our clinicians to make sure they are using these medicines appropriately. Use them in absolutely the right patient population. So folks who have mild to moderate Alzheimer's is where the indications are for those medicines, not severe stages, but they do have to be warned of specific side effects, things like decreased appetite and to the point where they sometimes patients completely stop eating. That's something to really pay attention to in folks who have Alzheimer's disease since they have decreased appetite due to lack of smell, by the way, uh, in the first place. So we really don't want to reduce that any further and cause any malnutrition. They have a warning about seizures. So in patients who have epilepsy or other medicines that might reduce the seizure threshold, you have to pay attention to this class of medicines. They also can cause bradycardia or, or a slow heart rate. Something I found fascinating is that folks who are on these cholinesterase inhibitor medicines have twice the rate of meeting a cardiac pacemaker placed, which again is an unfortunate situation that we're performing cardiac surgery on people basically simply for a drug side effect. That's super scary. So I ask people to please pay attention to those things. Also of note with that particular medicine group, you know, while these medicines are constantly fighting to increase acetylcholine availability in your brain, we have a lot of other medicines that we prescribe in the geriatric population that decrease acetylcholine. Bladder agents, for instance, and other anticholinergic medicines of which clinicians know there's many, many types. And so it's really important while we're trying to increase acetylcholine, we're not also prescribing pa patients medicines that decrease acetylcholine. I call that acetylcholine wars. When you have two medicines doing an opposite effect on the same neurotransmitter, it's kind of really hard to figure out what's going on. So one of the first treatments is actually take off of those kinds of medicines, reduce the polypharmacy, take off any anticholinergic cholinergic agents. And then the other major drug class that has been approved for a while are NMDA or glutamate antagonist. And there's only one medicine in that class, memantine. Um, and that medicine works because, again, if this is an antagonist, it's blocking basically glutamate. And glutamate is known to be an excitatory neurotransmitter. And if you overexcite neurons, it actually causes them to die. So the idea is just kind of slow that down. So that way we can preserve and prevent any future neuron loss from this devastating illness. But again, really has proven efficacy more on the mild and moderate stages. And still, just like the cholinesterase inhibitors, works mainly just to delay the progression. It doesn't reverse the illness in any way, but still can be useful in that early stages. Also, not without side effects. Important things for our clinicians to pay attention to are dizziness comes from this medicine. So increase in falls, which is super dangerous in the geriatric population. Another warning for seizures, just like the cholinesterase medicines. There's this scary thing called Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is a big bad rash that can happen and can be fatal. So it's important to pay attention to folks' skin as you start this medicine. And also really important in our population it is it can cause renal dysfunction. And anybody who has renal disease, you have to use uh, 
half the dose, for instance. And so neither group of medicines are without risk. And so just like everything else we do in psychiatry and specifically geriatric psychiatry, it's a risk benefit profile that a clinician has to look at. There are a lot of situations where you have to weigh the risks and the benefits, and it doesn't sound like there are a ton of options out there. But there is a research, maybe not as much as there should be when it comes to Alzheimer's. But there has been a recent article published by the University of Antioquia in Colombia, and this deals with a researcher looking at a certain population for early onset Alzheimer's. It looks like there's a genetic mutation that, that could color research in the future concerning another protein that's come on the stage. You mentioned the two earlier, but relin. So again, research is occurring. What are your thoughts on the future for Alzheimer's research and specifically maybe about that study? So I'm excited about is the future is really bright. So despite, unfortunately, there being some limited options right now, there is a ton of research going on in all different ways. Uh, the two medicines that I mentioned really are pretty late in the stages of the illness. Neither one of them have anything to do with the two proteins that I mentioned earlier, but a couple of new treatments do. So we actually have two immunotherapies, basically monoclonal antibodies that are being used and approved through an accelerated process of the FDA with some controversy, if you paid attention to that news. Not everyone agreed to the rapid and quick approvement of these medicines, but we do have two of these monoclonal antibodies, lecanemab and aducanemab, they always have tricky names, in order to basically go out and break up those beta amyloid plaques. So these are medicines that teach your immune system to go attack those plaques and help to break them down so that way they don't build up in your brain and cause the inflammation, etc. They absolutely work and in that they do cause those plaques to get broken up, but what unfortunately they have yet to prove in any sort of a long-term study is that makes a difference on the cognitive functions of those individuals. So the jury's still out on that, but there's a lot of folks that are looking and if this does become a fruitful endeavor, then that's something that I will surely pick up in my practice as well. But even that, in my opinion, is still too late, you know, because once these plaques are formed or these proteins are accumulating in the brain, that's still not fixing the problem. What we really have to do is back up probably 10 steps before that and figuring out what's going on in the first place that's causing that individual to develop these plaques. And it, there's still a chicken in the egg. Is the plaque the real problem or is the neuron dying and the plaque is kind of just taking up the space? And that's not even clear in and of itself. But I'm glad you mentioned genetics, Kim, because there's a couple of really important genetic factors being looked at. ApoE4, which is actually a lipid metabolism gene who helps to transport lipids around in your body, specifically cholesterol, has been cited as a problem. We have a lot of evidence for specifically two alterations of that gene. And if you wind up with a pairing of that, then you could develop early onset Alzheimer's. Most Alzheimer's develops in folks 70s, 80s, etc. And the risk goes higher the older you are. But early onset Alzheimer's are folks like more in their 50s and 60s who are developing this illness. And it really is pretty devastating on those families that are they're still working individuals that are suddenly developing this. And so there's a lot of research being done related to lipid metabolism. And what does that have to do with Alzheimer's disease? And, and it's really fascinating. Also, for folks who have Down syndrome or trisomy 21, they have a significantly increased risk of developing Alzheimer's and at a very younger age, you know, in their 40s or even 50s. And so what is it about chromosome 21? Well, guess what? ApoE4 is on chromosome 21, but there's other things. And so there's a lot of research being done genetically as to what might cause the illness. But then also you mentioned relin. So there's some ideas that there's a protein that helps clean up some of these damaging proteins in your brain. And so is there something we have metabolizing these proteins genetically automatically on our own that is at fault? And so there is some research being done on, on the protein relin and that that might actually be protected against Alzheimer's. So you have things like ApoE4, if they're mutated, can cause it. You have things like relin, if it's mutated, can protect against it. And so everything in genetics and in the brain is in a careful balance. And so there's research being done on both sides to see what we can do to actually get ahead of this illness 
in the very first place. But I just wanted to also add, you know, there's a lot of individuals out there researching various treatments for Alzheimer's disease. Even here at Aventis, we actually are participating in a phase three clinical research trial for a medicine that works on these early phases of Alzheimer's disease. So we can actually prevent it versus it ever getting to the point where you have plaques and tangles and cognitive decline. Because if you think, again, we're going to continue to treat, unfortunately, these late stages, we're going to wind up exactly where we are. But it's folks like us out there that are really trying to research the origins of this illness and treatments to help prevent it in the first place where I really think we're going to make a difference probably in the next 10 years. Well, it sounds like there's still a lot of work to be done, but a lot of work that is being done and heading in a direction, hopefully, that will put us in a more proactive than reactive place when it comes to Alzheimer's diagnosis and treatment. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Rucci, and for shining a light a bit more on Alzheimer's disease and specifically as it relates to our populations that we serve at Aventus Whole Health. Hello, and welcome to Full Circle, a healthcare podcast by Aventus Whole Health. I'm your host, Kim Howell, and this week I'm sitting down with Aventus's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Jennifer Rucci. We're discussing Alzheimer's in honor of June's status as Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Join us as Dr. Rucci walks us through the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia and some of the research taking place, some of it right here at Aventus, to tackle this hard-hitting disease.